Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. After loving the Lord himself with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, the Christian's second responsibility is, of course, to love our neighbor as ourselves. When asked what this command meant for our everyday living, Jesus told the outrageous story of a man walking down the dangerous road between Jerusalem and Jericho being attacked, robbed, and left for dead, but how the good Samaritan, at risk to his own safety, stopped, bandaged his wounds, transported him on his own donkey to an inn where he spent the rest of the day caring for him. The next day, he left a considerable sum of money with the innkeeper to continue to care for the wounded man, saying, If this is not enough, I will cover the extra cost when I return. Commenting on this passage, author Pastor Tim Keller writes, Jesus commands us to provide shelter, finances, medical care, and friendship to people who lack them. We have nothing less than an order from our Lord in the most categorical of terms, go and do likewise. Our paradigm is the Samaritan who risked his safety, destroyed his schedule, and became dirty and bloody through personal involvement with a needy person of another race and social class. Are we as Christians obeying this command personally? Are we as a church obeying it corporately? This episode seeks to look at poverty through a biblical lens, understanding its causes, misguided attempts to solve it, and especially what fulfilling our responsibility to care for the poor looks like. Thanks for joining us today for Season 4, Episode Number 21 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. To understand poverty, we must begin with God's design for mankind to flourish economically. As we saw in the first episode in this series, God's design to provide humans with the sustenance they need to flourish was not just a lush garden full of fruit trees. It was a plan for them to subdue the earth. The command to subdue implies that although what God made is good, it is to some degree underdeveloped. God left creation with deep, untapped potential for cultivation that humans are to unlock through our labor. Tim Keller again elaborates, We are not to relate to the world as park rangers whose job is not to change their space but preserve things as they are. Nor are we to pave over the garden of the created world to make a parking lot. No, we are to be gardeners who take an active stance towards their charge. They do not leave the land as it is. They rearrange it to make it more fruitful, to draw the potentialities for growth and development out of the soil. They dig up the ground and rearrange it with a goal in mind, to rearrange the raw material of the garden so that it produces food, flowers, and beauty. And that is the pattern for all work. It is rearranging the raw materials of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. 
The development of creation's potential is built upon and requires shalom, the Old Testament word for harmony and flourishing in relationships. God's design for economic flourishing, as described above in Genesis 1, requires harmony in the four basic relationships of life. Right relationship with God, my mission is to exercise dominion over all of life for him. Right relationship with self, my worth and dignity are eternally assigned to me by God, who made me his image bearer and equipped me with the abilities to do the good works he planned for me to do from eternity. Right relationship with others, my responsibility is summed up in the second greatest commandment, as we've seen, love your neighbor as yourself. And then right relationship with creation. I am to be its steward, developing the potential God placed in it for God's glory. So in view of this design, what is the cause of economic poverty? In his book, Walking with the Poor, Bryant Myers describes the fundamental nature of poverty. He writes, poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. Due to the comprehensive nature of the fall, every human being is poor in the sense of not experiencing the flourishing of these four relationships in the way God intended. Every human being is suffering from a poverty of spiritual intimacy with God, a poverty of internal wholeness and emotional health within himself, a poverty of community, and a poverty of stewardship. Let's dig deeper. Adam and Eve were designed to be God's image bearers, reflecting his nature as a worker and moral ruler. As moral rulers who had the law of God written on their hearts, they were to exercise dominion in a way that pleased God as culture developed and diversified. Human flourishing was the result of shalom in the four relationships of life. Walking in harmony with God's righteousness, they would have respected private ownership, theft being forbidden by the Eighth Commandment, honest business practices, lying being forbidden by the Ninth Commandment. They would also experience pre-fall wholeness, internal peace with themselves, no sense of inferiority, insecurity, competitiveness, or envy. Sinful selfishness has not exerted itself, and their call to vocation was the call to use their talents, innovation, and resources to make products to serve others. Third, experiencing pre-fall harmony in their horizontal relationships with each other, their hearts were not governed by greed, selfishness, cheating each other, or envy. Fourth, there was harmony in the created order. There was no poverty that had resulted from natural calamity like earthquakes, floods, or volcanoes erupting. Let's use this lens to consider the holistic, biblical approach to alleviating poverty in our cities, which is really a form of restoration. First, overcoming the poverty of being. Only God knows how profoundly slavery and racism have crushed black men and women's dignity. I wonder how many centuries it may take to undo such attacks on the self-esteem of those who bear the image of God. 
I'm told by those engaged in city ministry that this shattered self-esteem is linked to many outward symptoms of this brokenness. For example, a teen boy's desire to prove himself a man through his sexual prowess, or a teen girl looking for love in the arms of a male who just wants sex, or a teen girl who wants to feel needed by getting pregnant and having a baby who needs her and to some degree loves her back, a boy committing violence to win the respect of others in his gang. The wounds to the self-esteem of those in our cities, especially blacks, are so severe and so deeply rooted, it is doubtful their inner confidence and sense of worth can ever be restored apart from the power of Christ's Spirit indwelling them day by day, building confidence that they have enormous value as God's image bearers and pouring into them that love of Christ so that they know how long and wide and deep and high is the love of God for them. The urban poor need help overcoming their poverty of being. Second, a holistic approach to solving the problem of poverty in our cities means overcoming a poverty of family relationships. In my view, the single most significant cause of poverty in our cities is father absence. Barack Obama says children who grow up without fathers are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. 75% of black children are raised without fathers. For blacks, out-of-wedlock births have gone from 25% in 1965 to 73% in 2020. Black Lives Matter has stated publicly that it is committed to destroying the gender differences that are foundational to the nuclear family. But it takes a creation view of male, female, and the family to bring about true restoration in our families. Third, a holistic approach to solving the problem of poverty means overcoming spiritual poverty. A recent L.A. County Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration study found that of the homeless in L.A., 38% were alcoholics, 26% were addicted to drugs and other substances, and 25% suffer from mental illness. Poverty's cause is not a shortage of money, but the result of complex components to human brokenness that only Christians have the resources to restore. A root cause of poverty, fatherlessness, can't be addressed, in my view, apart from confronting the 73% out-of-wedlock birth rate. This high percentage can't be separated from the spiritual issue of teen pregnancy and having sex before marriage. Christians alone realize that God did not begin the world with a government or even with a church. He started it with a wedding. The gift of sex after the wedding provides warmth for the marriage, like cozy embers or blazing passion in the fireplace at home. But take that gift outside the home and it becomes a destructive forest fire. Until Christians get this message to teens in our cities, it is hard to envision change taking place in the fatherlessness rate, which is at the root of urban poverty. The fourth part to a holistic approach to alleviating poverty is overcoming a poverty of stewardship. 
The biblical alleviation of poverty requires helping every human discover and develop his or her potential, gifts, and talents, becoming economically self-sufficient. Several years ago, a small group of Christian congressional staffers who wanted to do something about the problems they saw with education in Washington, D.C., began to meet each week in the basement of the Capitol building to pray and seek God's will. They decided to open an academically rigorous Christian school in the city, in the heart of southeast Washington, D.C., Cornerstone now has 180 students, grades K through 12, 30 teachers and staff. 96% are black or African American, 2% Hispanic, 2% white, helping those children raised in our city to discover and develop their fullest potential. So how should Christians properly care for the poor? That is our question for the second half of today's podcast. First, recognize that the Bible does not support socialism. In contrast to the selfish capitalism of the West, socialism in our culture brings mental pictures of picturesque Scandinavian villages, farmers markets, smiling people working together for a common cause, an idyllic Camelot where everyone has his needs met, lives in harmony, and prospers. And besides, doesn't Acts 4, where the Christians shared everything in common, sold their land, and placed the proceeds at the apostles' feet, show the biblical support for socialism? Actually, no. Here's why. The property was voluntarily, freely sold, not forcibly confiscated, which is what socialism does. Next, the economic sharing of wealth was not done on the basis of class warfare, as socialism is. There is no hint that private ownership is deemed immoral. Third, the state is nowhere in sight. No government is confiscating property and collectivizing industry. Socialism is government ownership of the means of production and control of the distribution of goods. Fourth, Acts 4 is an example of voluntary generosity to meet a temporary crisis, not a state-run economy. Jerusalem's population swelled by 100,000 as Jews returned to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost, and over 5,000 men were added to the ranks of men alone in a few short days through the preaching of the gospel. The only source of teaching about this new life was in Jerusalem. So thousands decided to extend their stay in Jerusalem, putting an enormous burden on their hometown brothers and sisters in Christ to provide hospitality for them. In short, this is the story of hometown emergency generosity, not a pattern for an economic system. The second way Christians should care for the poor is to be agitated, grieved, moved by the way poverty assaults the dignity of every poor image bearer of God. We cannot be Christ-like and be apathetic. We cannot be Jesus followers and be passive about the plight of the poor. Cherishing every human being is required of anyone who claims to love God because there's a direct link between loving God and loving his image bearers. Consider just a few texts of scripture, Matthew 25. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and minister to you? 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Or consider 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Or James 3. With our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Or Proverbs 14.31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The third biblical way to care for the poor is to lower our standard of living so we can give generously to the poor. Jesus explained economic justice in Luke 12:48. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Americans today have been given much. In fact, we are enslaved to consumerism. The average America home contains 300,000 items. The average American house has almost tripled in size over the last 50 years. Of the world's children, 3.1% live in America, but Americans purchase 40% of the toys sold worldwide. On average, American women have 30 outfits. That figure was 9 in 1930. There are more television sets than people in the average American home. Americans spend 11.2% of total consumer spending on non-necessary goods like jewelry, alcohol, recreation, gambling, and so forth, compared to just 4% on such goods in 1959. The fourth biblical way to properly care for the poor is to support holistic mercy ministry to the poor, especially in our cities. That has been the great history of the church. Cities in the Roman Empire were characterized by poor sanitation, contaminated water, high population densities, open sewers, filthy streets, unbelievable stench, rampant crime, collapsing buildings, and frequent illness and plagues. Rather than fleeing urban cesspools, the early church found a niche there. The Christian concept of self-sacrificial love for others, emanating from God's love for them, was a revolutionary concept to the pagan mind, which viewed the extension of mercy as an emotional act to be avoided by rational people. Hence, paganism provided no ethical foundations to justify caring for the sick and the destitute. Sociologist Rodney Stark notes, To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violence and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. The fifth biblical way to care for the poor is to consider how you might be generous to workers who serve you. First, we need to pay them well, not negotiate the lowest possible payment for their labors. 
Second, we can be generous as we tip food service workers, airport luggage handlers, those processing grocery orders or mulch orders from Home Depot, tipping them with cash or making a point to always add a high amount of tip on our Visa card. Proverbs 14.21, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Or Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. The sixth way to properly care for the poor is to support wise government policies that help the poor. Many Christians argue strenuously that the state has no biblical warrant for helping the needy. But there are strong biblical reasons to disagree. Israel was a theocracy, which means that it is a pattern to us of both what Christ's church should do and what government, in some cases, should do. I believe the civil laws that prohibited landowners from draining every bit of profit from their crops cannot be ignored. Leviticus 23:22 And when you reap the harvest of your land you shall not reap your field right up to its edge nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner I am the Lord your God or Deuteronomy 24:19 and following When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field you shall not go back to get it It shall be there for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt." Therefore, I command you to do this. No matter whether your view is that this text applies somehow to the state today, possibly supporting a graduated income tax, or to the church, God's tone is intense. Caring for the poor matters to him. We can't claim to follow Jesus without considering how we can limit our consumption of goods that we don't need in order to give more to help those who bear God's image. To summarize this episode, everyone knows that if Christians are to be like Jesus, we will oppose economic injustice and devote ourselves to caring for the needs of the poor. As we saw last week, politicians have relentlessly tried to leverage this concern for the poor into votes. Wise Christians must think biblically about how to help the poor most effectively because God cares so much for them. We saw that the solution to poverty begins with a biblical understanding of God's design for human flourishing. As we saw two weeks ago, God has called and gifted every image bearer of his to help discover and utilize the resources God built into the earth to care for creation and to make life better for all. That perfect design is for shalom, harmony and flourishing to be experienced by humans in all four relationships of life, with God, themselves, others, and creation. The cause of poverty is breaking this shalom by Adam and Eve's sin 
and their rebellion passing on to their descendants. But the second Adam, Jesus, has come to restore shalom, to fix everything broken by sin. That is why the church has such a central role in ministry to the poor. The church has the ability to address all four aspects of the broken relationships which cause poverty. As a sort of case study, we saw that the problems of our city are not a shortage of money, but brokenness at all four levels. The urban poor often have very broken self-esteem, much of it caused by racism, broken relationship with themselves. At the root of our city problems is fatherlessness, broken relationships with family. With a rate of teen pregnancy at 73%, it seems impossible to address the fatherlessness issue apart from teaching urban teens the glory of God's design for sexuality in marriage, broken relationship with God. And with so many children raised with teen moms, single teen moms, it is almost impossible to help children be raised by adults who are flourishing economically by using their God-given gifts in the workplace, poverty of stewardship. We saw that Christians need to help care for the poor First, by thinking biblically about what economic system brings flourishing. Second, being inwardly grieved over the indignity and pain of poverty. Third, lowering our standard of living to give generously to the poor. Fourth, supporting holistic ministry to the poor. Fifth, being especially generous to laborers serving us. And sixth, wrestling with how best to implement the Old Testament teaching that the wealthy landowners could not squeeze every dime out of selling their produce, but had to make sure some of the produce went to the poor. For further prayerful thought, number one, how would you summarize God's plan for those on planet Earth to flourish economically? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you may want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. Next week, we complete our May series, Thinking Biblically About Money, Greed, and Economic Justice, by thinking about Paul's statement, the love of money is a root of all evil. What does that mean? How do we protect ourselves against the subtle focus on material blessing that is so enticing in our culture? If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ as together we seek to swell the ranks of strong, godly men who are leading their families and churches well.